Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? Then come check out our job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, jstore.org is looking for a senior brand designer in New York City or Ann Arbor, Michigan. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you throughout our podcast. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get started... A huge amount of thanks goes out to all of y'all that came out to our live show in Los Angeles last week. Thanks to Roland Wiley. Roland was our guest. He's a renowned LA architect. Thanks to Mae DeCastro. Thanks to AIGA Los Angeles. And thanks to the Emoja Center for hosting the event. It was a really, really great night. Great conversation. If you missed it, don't worry. It was recorded and it'll air on our March 2nd episode which will also be our seventh anniversary episode. Revision Path has really been around for seven years. Wow, that's wild to think about. I also want to remind you again to check out 28 Days of the Web this year. 28 Days of the Web is Revision Path's sister site. And during February, we honor a different black designer or developer for each day in the month. You can follow along at 28daysoftheweb.com or you can follow the project on Twitter at 28daysoftheweb. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Nick Caldwell, Chief Product Officer at Looker. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, I'm Nick Caldwell, Chief Product Officer at Looker. So talk to me about your work at Looker. I'm curious, like, what is an average day like for you there? Oh, complex question. You know, so I'm a Chief Product Officer, so that means I'm responsible for product engineering and design. I also have the uh, security team, which I'm responsible for. My average day is, is honestly really hard to predict, but I can tell you what I aspire it for it to be is that I've enabled all the people who work for me to get their best jobs done without my help. <laughs> that is to say, if I'm doing my job correctly, all of my team members know exactly what they're supposed to be doing to contribute to the overall strategy, and then I don't have to jump in and bother them about it. They can, they can do it themselves. 
But what that leaves for me is uh, in the instances when my team can't uh, do that execution without my help, I get to jump in, get people unblocked, help solve problems. And um, I guess that the, the position I'm in, like the only the really juiciest, most difficult problems bubble up to me. And then beyond, you know, running the team in that way, the other cool thing you get to do as a chief product officer is you get to be kind of a public representative for the company. So spend a lot of time talking to customers. Just before this recording this podcast, I was doing an interview with a, um, a news publication to talk about our upcoming release, Looker 7. Just generally like finding ways to represent the company publicly, not just by talking about the product, but also by bringing my own personality uh, to the mix it is a really fun part of the job. So it sounds like you kind of, well, one, you kind of help with the vision being the representative of the company, but then also ensuring that the people under you can manage and do strategy and actually contribute to the overall product. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we're, we're scaling. Looker is a fast growing company. I guess I should mention we just got acquired by, by Google and that's kind of a testament to how well the business is going. But as we scale, we, we have to think about, how does our organization, you know, handle more people who work for us? How do we handle the much, much larger volumes of customers that we're going to have? For me, that means thinking about, you know, obviously the product, you know, what we're building. But, but in some sense, I also have to treat the organization like a product as well. It has needs that grow and develop over time as well. So, you know, trying to figure out who our next generation of leaders is going to be, trying to empower them with all the same sort of skills and techniques that, that I would want to apply myself but I can't be everywhere. So we've got to have that next generation of leaders come into play. And, you know, leadership development and that sort of, of class of problem is is really fun. Like, you know, I, I enjoy coaching folks, mentoring them, and then seeing them kind of, you know, go up notches in their career. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate to, you know, for the past few jobs I've had to be in positions where, you know, I am doing a lot of that scaling and growth and people development and, uh, you know, get to see the fruits of that bear out in successful products and also just seeing people get further along in their careers. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy that part of my job quite a bit. Yeah. As I was doing my research, I was looking up the the acquisition, $2.6 billion. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad for a boy from PG County. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I know all that money didn't go to you, of course, you know, working for the company, but like, I'm curious, like, how did that acquisition change your life? There's a, a couple different ways to answer it. I'll give you like the corporate answer. I think you want the real answer. I mean, the corporate answer is, you know, <laughs> the, the corporate answer is we're part of a much, we're going to be, sorry, the deal hasn't actually closed yet. I think it'll probably close by the time this podcast airs. But what it means from the product perspective is like we're going to be able to accelerate all of the product functionality we want to build. We'll have access to, to greater resources. Google plus Looker enables us to really fully de deliver on the vision that we have for the, the overall product. But I think you're talking about from a personal perspective. Like from a personal perspective, what, what's happened is this makes this opens a, a whole new class of, of problems slash opportunities for me, mm. largely around the fact that, yeah, like to be blunt, we've got a lot more money, which is the most first world problem uh, to have because it's making me think about responsibilities that I have back to the community or to my family, things that, you know, it puts me in a position to have a much greater impact than I thought I could ever have even just a, a year ago. You know, I was talking about my desire earlier. I was talking about my desire and, and strong passion around leadership development. Well, now I'm in a position where maybe I can take some of my good fortune and reapply that to nonprofit efforts 
or uh, more larger scale ways to develop leaders. So, you know, I didn't talk about this earlier, but one of the things I'm doing on the, on the, on the side now is my wife and I have started a nonprofit, which is focused on getting more people of color into um, technical executive leadership uh, positions. And uh, I guess even before that, I, I was spending increasing amounts of time with a, a nonprofit called Dev Color, which is around getting junior uh, engineers of color into kind of higher level positions within their company. So starting to think a lot less about securing the bag and a lot, a lot more about legacy and what it means to help develop the next generation of leaders. And I think anyone who's been given privilege, at least in part, has to think about how they can use that privilege to help lever up other people. So I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that right now. I don't know if I have the the right answer to it, but I certainly have an opportunity to, to make a, an impact in a way that goes well beyond, you know, building cool products and into making it easier for the next generation of, you know, engineering leaders of color, making it easy for them to succeed. So, you know, I want to try and do that. We're, we're getting moving on it. You know, I aspire to make a difference here and I just feel fortunate to be in the position to be able to have this as a, as a problem. So. Yeah. Speaking of which, how did you get started at Looker? Not too complicated. I was VP of engineering at Reddit and I had been there for uh, a couple of years and I was starting to think about my next opportunity would be, as you know, in the Bay Area, it's like your typical tenure at any company is, you know, around two years. Startups move really quick. So I'd started to look around. Looker, the CEO, a guy named Frank Bien, he needed someone to help them kind of scale the product and engineering organizations. And then additionally, Looker is a, a what's called a business intelligence product. And uh, in my past role, previous roles at, uh, at Microsoft, I actually built one of the, the world's dominant uh, BI products. So it was just very, very fortunate in terms of timing. It all came together. I was right in the mindset of, you know, exploring new opportunities. And Looker needed someone with almost my exact expertise to come in and, and help them scale up. So product running product engineering design for a fast growing, like kind of modern approach to BI was just the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, I think three months after we joined, we started to think about potentially IPOing and then eventually we got acquired, you know, so it, you know, really shows the right horse to bet on. What is the hardest part about what you do? The hardest part about my job is that there's a large number of what you call stakeholders. There's, there's a lot of, of people who depend on my organization to be successful. So if you think about what product and engineering do, you know, we, we are trying to build the best possible product for our customers at any given moment. But how do we know what the best possible product to build is? Well, we have to get inputs from all sorts of different sources, mm-hmm. existing customers, future customers. Those customers can be differentiated by, by size, region, all sorts of different dimensions. We have uh, our customer support team who wants us to, to know, focus on existing, the existing product and making sure that the, you know, known bugs are addressed rapidly. We've got input from our, our field sales teams who are discovering new requirements and new functionality. And then I shouldn't leave out the very important, like, you know, it's important to treat your engineering organization as a customer as well. So they want us to, of course, invest in better developer productivity tools, paying down technical debt, innovation projects that they may have discovered. All of this is the the challenge. And, um, you know, synthesizing all of this is the challenge. And it's my role to to build an organization that can take all of this input 
translated into the best possible product roadmap or set of investments that we need to make in as an organization. And not just the roadmap, but we then have to go and build the organization, hire the right people, make sure that, you know, that we have the right managers and, and line everyone up. All the, all the skills that we have at our disposal are lined up to best meet these very, very difficult product challenges. So in a nutshell, like synthesizing all of that is the, is the toughest part of my job because there's so many inputs. They change all of the time. And the thing that we do to meet this demand is we build an organization. That organization is constructed of people and every person has different, you know, motivations, things that they want to accomplish with their careers, different things that excite them and things that they want to learn. All of that has to come together in the right way for us to build a successfully operating product organization. So it's complicated. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine, you know, with, first of all, I think just with the acquisition that changes the game for every single person that works at Looker, because now you are part of this much larger, you know, much more well-known company. Of course, there's more money, but then there's also like a merging, I would imagine, like a merging of cultures that probably come into play. Is that right? Again, we haven't merged yet. Like we're still waiting to integrate, but it's one of the things that we do talk about as a potential concern. But the nice thing about the Looker plus Google union is um, we, we see a lot of good cultural overlap. I mean, I, I think Looker's headquarters is in Santa Cruz. So, you know, I don't, we want to make sure we don't want to lose that. I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Cruz, but Santa Cruz is kind of a beach town. It's very laid back, kind of chill place. We don't want to lose that kind of cultural element that makes Looker feel relaxed and, and, and so forth. At the same time, like, uh, we're pretty excited about the, you know, I don't want to say Google propeller headism, but they do give out propeller head hats whenever you join to every new employee. But there's a certain amount of excitement that we have around the Google technical culture and how we can integrate some of their, you know, more forward looking products like BigQuery and, and so forth, how we can more directly work with those products and integrate them into, into Looker's product roadmap. So and we're, we're pretty excited about it. I, I think the, from a culture perspective, I think we have a, a really solid understanding of what makes Looker great and successful. And then we want to take the best of that and bring it with us to Google. Very nice. So you mentioned being a boy from PG County. What was it like growing up there? I don't know if your audience knows PG County is. PG County is uh, in Maryland. and um, it's, it's, it's black people. They know. <laughs> awesome. What's up, man? <laughs> yeah, PG County is like 95, 98% black uh, county in uh, southeast of D.C. Growing up there, I mean, it, on the one hand, it's like super comforting. I mean, you're around, you're, you're in the community, right? And it feels very welcoming in, in that sense. But I, I think in the, the downside of that is, um, what's the way to put it? Opportunities are, are not equally distributed. You know, talent, I think, you know, potential is equally distributed, but opportunities are not equally mm-hmm. distributed. So, you know, if you, if you grew up on the East Coast or, or in Maryland, you know, I think if you're going to stay in that area, you, you know, you're largely going to be thinking about government jobs, things of that nature. And I always, uh, not always, but I mean, I, I kind of very early on in life realized tech would be a great way to go if you wanted to think about, A, uh, being a part of forward-looking trends and, B, making money. You know, I, I very early on tried to, to think of ways that I could achieve these goals, and it became clear to me that, like, because opportunities are not equally distributed, that I would have to find a way to, to get out of PG County and, and go somewhere else if I wanted to achieve my maximum potential. And I think I realized that 
pretty early on. I, I can't remember the exact moment, but it's something that is kind of borne out to be true. I mean, when I wanted to get the best possible education to set myself up for future success, I realized that it wasn't going to be, you know, University of Maryland or UMBC. It was going to be, I'm going to try and swing for the fences. And, and I really wanted to get into a school like, uh, you know, MIT or Harvard. And I, early on, I decided that was going to be the goal. And then from there, it kind of followed. I just kept setting this kind of personal mission to go wherever the best opportunities were and try and take the best advantage of them. And I, it's played out for quite, well, I guess, most of my life. So it sounds like, you know, tech was maybe like a big part of your growing up, like you were exposed to it at an early age. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think when I was, uh, I mean, I, I must have been a toddler. I, I was like three, four-ish. Anyway, my, my dad uh, brought home a Tandy 1000. These were one of the very, very earliest types of uh, computer. And my dad was a case, uh, he was doing his casework. He was a, a, a lawyer and uh, he went from doing that on paper by hand to uh, Tandy 1000 typewriter. So I used to, excuse me, Tandy 1000 personal computer. So I used to sit on his lap and it would let me kind of punch into the uh, into the keyboard. I'm surprised I didn't break anything. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he got me like kind of early games to play on it. And over time, I just got fascinated with this thing. By the, the time I was age 10, I was for sure hooked on video games. Uh, I was, you know, playing PC games. And uh, he bought me a book called learn C++ in 12 easy lessons, which which was a lie. You can't learn C++ in 12. <laughs> but no, I, I really just dug into that. I, I decided that that, uh, that was going to be the thing I spent my summer learning. And by the end of the summer, I taught myself C++, and I had used that knowledge to start my own bulletin board system. I don't know if you remember these things, but Pre-internet, like, you know, you could set up your own, like, little bulletin board systems and start your own community. And I started coding extensions for that, like little video games and things like that. So I was, I was already hooked and I started to, um, to see as, as a part of doing this bulletin board system that the world was so much bigger than PG County. Uh, you know, people from across the country would like call into this bulletin board system and leave messages on it or upload files. And, and it gave me an opportunity to talk to, to people from different walks of life and, and different age groups, different jobs. It was kind of like I got early access to all of the potential that the internet could have. Mm-hmm. And the key thing, the key realization to all this to, to me was like, this is going to be huge later on. And I should, I should learn as much as I can about how to code so I can be a part of it. And fortunately, I dropped all my other hobbies. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I went from like, you know, your typical 80s kid playing outside every day, riding your bike around the neighborhood. I went from doing all that to just like coding and, and working on uh, software plugins like almost instantly. So, wow. you know, I, I just immediately fell in love with it. There's just something cool about, you know, you write software and, and uh, you know, you hit run on it and the, the computer's doing something like in a program fashion that you told it to do. Yeah. That It's just always been fascinating. And like the, t- the other thing, which is really important, this like sparked a desire to me. I really started to get hardcore academic at this point in my life. <laughs> So it wasn't just, um, you know, fascination with computers. It, it led to better academics. It led to me going to uh, uh, another school in Maryland, which had better uh, computer science program, which ultimately ended up letting, uh, leading me to go to MIT. So it, it had like kind of a very foundational role in my life. It set me up for like, you know, being so excited about computers at this early age set me up for with a great foundation for future career. Mm, wow. Did you have your your family support you in all this? Because 
I would imagine starting out with this, and I guess I might be projecting a little bit because I, this sounds so similar to me growing up. <laughs> like we didn't have a Tandy One Thousand. We had a well, my my older brother had a um, he had a VTech Laser Fifty computer. It was, it was sort of like sort of like the size of a standard ten key keyboard now, but it had a, a like a one line like dot matrix screen on it, and you could basically program. And I learned I learned basic. We only had in the library, they only had one computer book and it was on basic. It was this green. I need to find that book, but it was like a green book that taught you how to program in basic. And like the laser 50 came with all these little peripherals, like a, a cassette disc, like a disc drive, but it's a cassette, you know, that and like a little, it had like a little tiny dot matrix printer, you know, that you could expand memory and do all this sort of stuff with it. And I remember just learning how to code on basic with that thing and then like graduating from that to like the Apple IIe in school and learning how to do that and work with DOS and all that sort of stuff. So my mom probably hated it. She wanted me to be doing other stuff, like getting out there and like, oh, you should be, you know, going outside and, you know, like you say, riding bikes and stuff like that. And I was like, no, I want to program. I want to do this. I want to go to the computer lab. And how was your family? Did they support you in all this? Yeah, yeah. It had like a little it had like a little tiny dot matrix printer that you could expand memory and do all this sort of stuff with it. And I remember just learning how to code on basic with that thing and then like graduating from that to like the Apple IIe in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Learning how to do that and work with DOS and all that sort of stuff. So my mom probably hated it. She wanted <laughs> me to be doing other stuff like getting out there and like, oh, you should be, you know, going outside and you know, like you say, riding bikes and stuff like that. And I was like, no, I want to program. I want to, do this. I want to go to the computer lab. And how was your family? Would they support you in all this? It was odd. I think they, uh, my family, you know, is great in the sense that they tried to expose me to a lot of, of different things. I mean, my, my dad, jazz music, a chess club, painting, like they, they would encourage me to do all sorts of things. And uh, programming was one where it was so clear that it, it, it stuck with me, that I that I really wanted to, to, to stay with it because I dropped all these other hobbies. So they actually kind of leaned into it with me. I think uh, what I remember is uh, once I expressed that I was interested in it, not only did my dad like continue to take me to the uh, bookstore. So the first book I got was like, you know, learn C++. I think the next book I got, which was stunning to me at the time, it was like a $250 book on how to code video games. So that was like the second or third programming book I ever bought. So I was learning how to do like assembly language, like within about four or five months of, uh, of deciding that this was interesting. And my dad was putting like a lot of money into it. Like I was like, wow, 250 bucks. I think part of this was, uh, oh, and also my mother like found out summer programs for me to go to where, um, you know, you could, uh, you know, uh, part of it would be like coding camps and things like that. Mm-hmm. And to get to those things, they were, they were not in PG County. We had to drive like two counties over to participate in those things. So they were, I was fortunate that they like a recognized that I was excited about this yeah. and they were willing to, uh, <laughs> to, you know, they were willing to, to tolerate my near total fixation on it. So I, I was, I was really fortunate in that, but yeah, I did have a few times where my mom like did show up and just kick me out of the house and Say like, hey, you need to go. <laughs> you know, stop staring at the screen and go bike. That did happen one or two times, but largely speaking, they were super supportive. Let's talk about MIT. You went there for undergrad. What was it like there? MIT is pretty brutal. I actually, to be honest, I don't recommend most people 
go to it. Like people ask me uh, about that a lot now because um, I think uh, MIT is a great reputation as a school. You will learn a lot. You will learn how to learn. It is an extremely difficult school, though. And uh, for me, you know, it was kind of doubly difficult because it's not a very diverse school. So I was, uh, you know, I was coming from PG County, Maryland, which, um, you know, again, PG, my hometown's like, you know, 95% black. Boston is not that. Cambridge is not that. So it was honestly like a, a major whiplash uh, for me, uh, you know, to go up there and kind of be isolated from the community. And then simultaneously, like no one goes to MIT and, and you know, excuse me, when, you, when you're in high school, in order to get to MIT, you have to be pretty smart. So I was like, yeah, I'm a pretty smart guy in high school. You know, you, you build up a little bit of, of ego and so forth. That lasts maybe three hours into MIT. <laughs> like, I remember, like the, I, I'm not exaggerating this. Like, so, uh, you know, I, I remember the first day at MIT, they pair you up with uh, other first uh, year students, right? Yeah. And you go out to lunch with them and things like that. So the first few hours of my MIT experience was I went to go hang out with my group. And uh, when I sit down at the lunch table and you know, I'm waiting for people to show up, a little kid shows up, he sits down and a few other people show up. And we're all kind of wondering why the little kid is there. So we ask him, like, oh, hey, is your brother here? Are you waiting for somebody? He's like, oh, no, I'm a first year, too. And we're like, dude, how old are you? He's like, oh, I'm 12. (laughs) That's when it kind of hits you that, like, no matter how smart you think you you were, here's a 12-year-old who is probably a genius. He ended up being, uh, like, a few years later, he was, like, teaching one of the classes. I mean, it was wild. It really forces you into a different mindset, which is, like, you no longer can kind of coast through any challenges. The challenge is going to be really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And it gets you into a kind of a mentality that like whatever life throws at you, you'll have to come up with a plan and like work your way through it. So in that sense, my MIT was, you know, formative for me. There's really not been any challenge that I've faced professionally that has come close to what I dealt with as a, uh, a black student going to MIT, you know, going from PG County to Boston and then putting up with that very, very rigorous, difficult curriculum. But at the same time, it like it just set me up to be able to take on any sort of, of challenge. Like, you know, if you look at my career after that, I mean, I, I take big swings at things and largely speaking, I've have been able to pick my way through and, and find success. So I'll stop there. So how did the NASA internship come up? Oh, uh, that's just funny that you mentioned that. So like I was saying earlier, uh, you know, if you're in, in uh, Maryland, you know, a, a large number of people out there end up working at um, government institutes. So when I was in uh, high school, because I could code, I had uh, the and because I had good academic record, we had the opportunity to do kind of a, an intern program as, as part of a high school curriculum. So I think this was junior year. I was able to take time off of regular school and go work with uh, a governmental institution. I've loved, you know, the space program since a young age. I mean, I think anyone from our generation probably would, would tell you how fascinating to watch shuttle launches and stuff. It used to be a huge deal. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, so when um, the opportunity came around, you know, it was like uh, NASA or NSA or the uh, FDA. Like those, I think those are the three ones that I could go to. Uh-huh. And I, of course, I jumped at, uh, at NASA. I ended up working there as an intern for, I think, three years and uh, working on satellite parts. Now, the, the problem with working at a government institution like NASA is the uh, it, it takes a long time for that stuff to ship. I mean, nowadays, you know, if you're in tech, like people complain about like, oh, don't do waterfall. What they think waterfall is, is it takes like three months to plan something that that's. 
Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> at, at NASA, I mean, I was there for three years working on this uh, satellite, the High Energy Solar Spectral Imager. I believe uh, it didn't actually launch until three years later, and then it exploded when it launched. Uh, so they had they had to redo it. So I think the from uh, total project length, I think it was uh, more than eight to ten years. So I really enjoyed being exposed to that early on because. One, again, I got to learn more coding. And when I was at NASA, I got to do a combination of visual basic, assembly. I got to learn very, how to code for very, very specialized pieces of hardware, which was, which was really fun. But it also taught me that like working at a government institute was not what I wanted to do for my career. I'm, I like to be entrepreneurial. I like to be fast paced. And I thought to myself, like, maybe the answer to that, what I really want to do, isn't at this NASA job. No matter how cool I thought it would be, I've got to keep looking. So that kind of planted the early seeds of, like, I want to do something entrepreneurial. Like, I didn't get to, to sow those seeds for a very long time, but that's kind of where it started. Man, you're <laughs> just hearing you talk about this, I, I'm trying not to make these parallels to myself, but, like, so I wanted to... <laughs> So I, this is probably about, I don't know, maybe 11th or 12th grade. I just wanted to like get out of my small, so I'm from Alabama, I'm from Selma, Alabama. And it's funny you mentioned that about like space and growing up because space camps in Alabama, it's in Huntsville because we have a, a space, oh, sorry, we have a NASA facility in Normal, which is near Huntsville where the space camp is. And so never got to go to space camp, but space was always something that was kind of around when you, I, I felt like based on where I was going in terms of my education, like working for the government was going to kind of be the goal. So right around like 11th or 12th grade, I was really looking at like, what are places that I would like want to intern and work at? NASA was one of them. CIA and FBI were what I was looking at. Like I wanted to be a clandestine service agent <laughs> for the FBI. <laughs> I laugh at it now, but because I was good in math and it was sort of the thing that my one of my teachers was trying to push me into, like, you could really do this and, you know, that sort of stuff. And so you mentioned the Challenger. I'm actually a, a Ronald McNair scholar. Ronald McNair was one of the, the astronauts uh, on the Challenger. And so that's how I ended up going to Morehouse. I got a, a McNair scholarship and then that's sort of fed into the NASA internship. The The program that we worked on the first year I interned, I was at Ames, which is out in Moffett Field which is uh, near Mountain View, kind of south of San Francisco in the Bay. And I worked on the uh, Sophia Project, which is this, uh, it's a 747 that they cut a hole in on the side and they put in a huge like gyroscopic telescope. Sophia stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. So the plane like orbits the Earth and like observes like magnetic fields and comets and all that sort of stuff. And so my internship was with Ames at the Sophia Science Center. We were doing stuff like that. We were working with robotics. It was so cool. Like it was the coolest shit I had ever done in life. Like it, I, 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 I kid you not. And I was also working with like HTML and stuff. So like I got to program the robotics education homepage and we were teaching K through 12 students how to like do programming with robotics using like Lego Mindstorm kits. I was like, this is, I was like, this is the coolest shit I have ever done ever. And like, you know, go back to school and I'm, you know, studying and whatnot. And then my next internship was at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville. 
And I was doing something a little different. I was working more with human, what was it called? Human factors engineering. So like that was where I saw like my first 3D printer. That was where I saw, because like they they 3D print the nose cone on the space shuttle because it burns up on reentry. So they use this this hexagonal like printing filament called Marcor. And like they print out, they showed me how they print out the nose cone. And so I got to work with like human factors engineering and, and stuff like that. Still some of the coolest shit I had ever done. And I really wanted to continue like on that path. And then nine 11 happened. And like they pulled the, the government, pulled the funding for my scholarship program. And I was like, fuck, I don't have anything else lined up. So I'm, I'm curious to know when you talked about like the entrepreneurial thing, once you graduated from MIT, like what was your next step? I had a lot of student debt. <laughs> <laughs> So with, with so this is I want to start with this. It's like because a lot of people ask me specifically, like you know, hey Nick, you graduated from MIT, you should have gone to work for Google or Facebook. So I want to frame the the, the timing of my graduation, put it all in context. Google, I mean, they were basically still a startup uh, yeah. when I graduated. Facebook did not even exist. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was still uh, mm-hmm. going to Harvard, and I had like huge amounts of student debt. I really wanted to a be in tech, but b find the shortest possible path to like a successful, lucrative tech job. Like, uh, you know, I wanted to pay back those loans, set myself up for success. You know, maybe go back to my hometown and, and be the big hero, help my mom pay some bills or something like that. So, you know, Microsoft at that time was you know the biggest tech company. And uh, I decided I wanted to work there. They had a group called the Natural Interactive Services Division. It's just a fancy way of saying, like, they worked on machine learning and uh, natural language processing, which I had become, like, fascinated with during my time at MIT. Like, the, the uh, you know, I was doing machine learning at a, during an era when it was definitely not considered cool. I remember my advisor actually told me not to pursue machine learning. He said it was a dead end. <laughs> you know, it took a while, but I my, think my advisor told me the same thing about the web. He said it's a fad. Like he said, if you want to, if you want to study this, you should change your major. So I did because I started out computer science and changed to math. Who's gonna do this HTML stuff? That's <laughs> yeah. no, so. So I mean, I ended up choosing uh, Microsoft, and uh, you know, it wasn't an entrepreneurial decision. I think during my time at Microsoft, I tried to bend the experience that way. Um, you know, I, I joined teams that did lots of internal kind of new projects, new startups. I, I tried to, um, you know, find ways to express my passion for doing new things with new technology and, and taking on those big sorts of challenges within the broader ecosystem of Microsoft, which is obviously like a very well-established uh, business. But if you if you trace my career through there, started in a, a team that was doing like very, very forward-looking machine learning and NLP tech, and then carried that through to, to multiple different other teams and, and was able to, to carve out like a very successful career. Nice. And you were there for a long time. <laughs> yes. 15 years, over 15 years, a little over 15 years. I like the emphasis you put on that, like a long, wow. I mean, it is, it is a long time. You started in what, like 2004, 2005, something like that? My first internship there was 2001, I think. That's a long time. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, I, and I say that because, you know, to, of course, the industry has changed so much from year to year. I mean, even if you think of like those early times in the 2000s to now, it's like night and day. And to be at the same place, especially a company like Microsoft that 
like we know where Microsoft's reputation was back then. And then, of course, it I don't want to say it's gotten maligned, but I would say like between like 06 and 2013, people were like, yeah, we'll look at Apple. But now Microsoft has started to sort of have this great resurgence, not just through gaming, but like also with, you know, Windows 10 and with, you know, devices and stuff like that. So to be at a company that long and to see it through all of that, that's a rarity in this industry. Let me shortcut, like, because I, I know we want to give people advice. I mean, I, I definitely tell people not to stay at one place for 15 years nowadays. <laughs> but, um, you know, in my defense, I was just having a really good time. Externally, Microsoft was dealing with all of these um, sort of challenges with, um, you know, governmental regulation and so forth. But mm-hmm. for me in my role, like I was just popping between really, really fun projects. Like uh, I got to my first project was I got to own the spell checker for all the Microsoft products. I, and then I got to do that thing shipped to more than a billion people. I mean, like that's wow. that's impact, right? You know, then I got to do a bunch of machine learning and NLP projects as a part of uh, Microsoft Exchange and SharePoint. Like one, one of the cool things about it was you could ship something and it could go out to, you know, millions and millions and millions of people and you could really have big impact. And Microsoft also has something that early on, to be blunted, it, it had a very safe sort of understandable career path. Like, you know, any big company that got like really well-established job ladders and you can kind of like particularly if you're a video gamer it's like oh a ladder goals achievements yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna play that game and see how far up i can get so at microsoft the the game is like everyone wants to work their way up to a ladder level called partner right so a uh, partner is like considered you i guess you win the the, the career game mm-hmm. so for a large part of my career i had this mentality that like your career was directly tied to your job title or the number of people who reported to you And I had gotten into this mindset and, um, you know, at a big company like Microsoft, they actually do set it up so that you can you can if you value success in that way, you can drive your career in that way. And I, I was doing like doing that quite well. I ended up becoming a general manager at Microsoft, I think, after it was like 12 years. I mean, I made, I hit that partner goal after around 12 years, which, um, if for folks who work at Microsoft, like going from like new employee to partner or general manager in 12 years is like a extremely rapid pace. I think the, the only person I'm aware of who did it faster was a, a guy named uh, Scott Guthrie, who's currently the senior vice president of all of, of Azure. So I was having a really good time as the, as the, Long story short, and I got to work on a product called Power BI. It ended up being like the fastest growing Microsoft product in 2016. So I was, I was having an amazing time. But I did kind of eventually realize that although I was having a, a great time, working on new products inside a big company is not actually entrepreneurship. <laughs> I started to slowly realize this over time. Part of it was uh, when I was getting toward the, I guess, the last, the final few years of my career at Microsoft, I had decided to go get an MBA because I, I love formal education. It's just the way that I like to absorb content and learn. It, you know, formal education forces you to be in a place and a time to, to learn things. And sometimes I need that discipline if I want to learn. So I decided to get an MBA and I decided I wanted to learn about entrepreneurship. So that I started to, to fly down to Berkeley Haas uh, School of Business on the weekends to take uh, my MBA classes. And I started to get exposed to people outside of the Microsoft bubble, outside of the Seattle bubble, people who would, could tell me about all of the cool things that were happening in Silicon Valley. And I, you know, I was like, oh, wow, like I used to not take this part of the world as seriously as I should have. 
because I thought like, hey, Microsoft is a gigantic company and you know I can spend my whole career here and be happy. But as I started to get exposed to all these other, you know, people and companies and ideas, I realized like there's so much more opportunity out there if I'm willing to take on a little bit more risk and get a little bit more uncomfortable and maybe trap pursue a career that isn't just popping up job ladders and is maybe about taking a few horizontal moves or, or maybe have a smaller team with bigger impact because, you know, what I can deliver to the company matters more. So I started to think about my role in companies and how I wanted to navigate my career radically differently after that, that MBA. And then I think uh, within six months of graduating the MBA, you know, I had a, a meeting with my um, corporate vice president at Microsoft. And I was like, hey, I think it's I think it's time for me to go. I want to go. I want to go really be part of this, the startup ecosystem. And he's like, where are you going to go? And I was like, well, my, my friend works at Reddit. He says they're looking for a VP of engineering. Guy like laughed in my face. <laughs> It's like, you're going to go to Reddit? What's that? So, uh, but I, I really wanted to. I mean, I, I think uh, at that time, Reddit was a Series B startup. They really need, needed someone to help them scale the engineering team. And I was like, I've done this before. I've worked at, you know, I've run big teams at Microsoft. I bet my skill set would be really, really valuable to this team. I bet I could have a huge impact. Even though it's a smaller team, you know, the, the impact uh, that I could have would be much, much bigger and affect, you know, all of the, the Reddit global audience, which is hundreds of millions of people. So I started to get really excited about that. And I mean, you, you kind of, I mean, you joined Reddit in 2016, right? Like late-ish 2016. This was kind of at a time when like the company maybe didn't have the best reputation in tech. You say that very politely, yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, this was, this was, I mean, to, to put it in context, people that are listening, this is like near the time Trump got elected. And there was a lot of stuff going on around Reddit in terms of like just violent hate speech and things of that nature. Did you think about these things when you thought about going to Reddit or were you just kind of strictly looking at like, this is a startup. I want to do something more entrepreneurial. This is a good place to go for that. No, I mean, I, I did consider it because, you know, going back to what I said earlier, I, I early on in my tech career, if you will, I was running bulletin board systems. So I understand the challenges that come with building like online communities. It's, it's something that like I was doing pre-internet. So when I looked at what the challenges are with, with look, or with Reddit, sorry, I kind of looked at that more like I see the value here mm-hmm. and the reason that they're trying to hire me is because they also recognize these problems and they need someone to to help. And the pieces that I can help with have to do more with engineering and, and so forth. But alongside me, they were hiring all new product people. They were gearing up to really take this sort of challenge seriously. I don't know if you recall this, but the the first week I had the job at Reddit, you know, we actually went to a conference. Excuse me. We went with the exec team all went together to a conference called Tech Inclusion. It's a conference that used to be run by Wayne Sutton. Sutton yeah, I know yeah. yeah, no, he's awesome, dude. But the very first week we were there, the whole exec team went and did an hour long. You know, let's talk about how Reddit is going to address problems on the site, including things like hate speech, including like wanting more diversity on the platform. So we were taking it really head on. So I knew all those problems were there. But in all of my interaction with the exec team, all I got was like the authentic desire to try and, you know, make things better. It was like, well, I can be a part of, of, of solving that. 
it was super fun. I mean, that whole experience, I mean, getting to scale their engineering team, getting to, uh, you know, I, w- I think you would agree that the reputation of the site is now a lot different in the sense that they have invested heavily in uh, cleaning up a lot of the, um, the toxic communities and the infrastructure for doing that is allowing them to scale more rapidly. You know, I feel really proud about the, the work that the team did there, as well as the culture that we built inside the, the company. Um, we had one of the most diverse, probably the most, yeah, actually, I'll, I'll make a stronger claim. That was the most diverse company I've gotten to work at in my professional career. I was really proud of being a part of building that. When you look at your career now, you look back at it, you know, currently at Looker slash Google, Reddit, Microsoft, et cetera. What is Silicon Valley like for you at this stage in your career? At this stage in my career, Silicon Valley is just unlimited opportunity. I mean, I uh, I wish I had moved out here sooner. Silicon Valley, like, it's interesting. The more – I've only been here three years if you just wall clock time. So okay. I'm still learning about all of the different facets of, of, of how Silicon Valley works. And I, I'm by no means an expert. But one thing I for sure have realized over the past, you know, year or two is that there is more opportunity and more money to fund ideas here than in any part of the world by far. It, it is an engine for connecting investment capital with bright, ambitious people. Now, that's all fine and good. The negative side of that, the thing that, you know, as a person from Fiji County that I'm starting to realize is that the opportunities are not equally distributed. So although this is a place that is just phenomenal, there's no better place in the world for investment, you know, changing the future, yada, 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 that opportunity is not available as equitably as it should be. And I'm trying to find ways to to help with that, that problem. Part of it is, you know, can we find ways to get more underrepresented people, people of color into tech positions. So I, I do see a lot of progress on that dimension, you know, here in, in the Bay Area. There's so many boot camps. And if you talk to startups and, and increasingly large companies, they're seeking out new ways to bring diverse candidates into the top of their hiring funnels. And I see a lot of progress happening there. But I still think that much of the um, the wealth opportunity sits high in higher levels of career growth, right? So executive levels in particular. So one thing that I'm spending a lot of time on now is trying to think through how do we get people who are in middle or late career, you know, people of color into executive roles? One thing I guess you didn't ask me about Reddit was like, how did I even discover that opportunity? Access to executive recruiting networks is something that I had to discover effectively through word of mouth. I kind of got lucky. If I hadn't had that luck, I don't know if I would have ever been able to leave Microsoft, you know, get introduced to the right people and start exploring different executive opportunities. So I want to try and make that easier for the next generation. I think that having access to the right people on the right network is one of the, the largest inhibitors for, uh, you know, people of color to get to the, the next level of growth. Yeah. And, you know, I want to try and invest in creating those networks. So, you know, next, I think I told you this, but next week I'm actually going to host a, an event where we connect 
Uh, I invited more than a hundred people of color, mid and late career, who want to learn about how to get into tech exec roles. We are going to have them, and then we're going to have a panel with more than six different executive recruiters and people of color who have made it into uh, exec roles, and just talk about the paths and the right ways to to network, the right ways to position yourself for those opportunities, how the interviews work differently than normal tech interviews. I just want to spread that knowledge as far and wide as I can into the community to make it easier for the next uh, the next generation. Because for me, I had to discover all this stuff the hard way. Um, you know, and I don't I don't think it needs to be that hard if we just share information. Yeah. How do you define success now? Early on, I defined success as trying to make money. You know, I talked about that student loan thing. The middle of my career, I think I defined success as, as having freedom, like the ability to work where I ch- wanted to, on the projects that I wanted to, with the people that I wanted to. And then I think now I'm switching into a mode where I define success as legacy, like what am I leaving behind? And will I be remembered for having made an important difference, not just from a product perspective, because products come and go, but will I leave a positive impression on the next generation of, of people of color in tech? I think that's where I'm landing. So I'll, I'll stop there. How do you sort of navigate the expectations that others might have about you? I would imagine, you know, being at this stage in your career and you're doing all of this kind of outreach to the community, like you're saying, how do you manage those expectations that folks have? Or do you even think about it? Yeah, I was going to say, what do you mean? Is this a trick question? Did you have some expectation of me? No. Did I have any expectation of you? Yeah, I'm curious what you mean. I mean, look, I've talked to a lot of people on this show, right? I never know how people are going to react. Some people I will ask and they're like, you know, I don't want to talk about X, Y, Z. I don't want to be classified as a black blank, you know, whatever their title is or what have you. I was just curious because I know I've talked to people that are at, you know, sort of different levels of their career, certainly ones that are at very high levels. And it seems like from the larger community, there's like a big expectation of, I don't know whether it's, it's benevolence of helping out or reaching out, you know, reaching out or reaching back or what have you. Like, are those things that you even think about? You know, I don't think the larger community puts this sort of expectation or pressure on me. It's something that's like intrinsic to me. Like I, I, I've been a manager for a long time. I, I think I could claim I was a pretty good one. <laughs> and one thing that I think makes for good managers is you, you care about other people that like the best managers I've ever worked for have tried to understand where I'm trying to go with my career and my life. And they're trying to line up the right opportunities. And the intersection of that is kind of the sweet spot. My personal goals and desires line up with what the business wants. Um, we end up in the, in the best possible place. So for me, as a as a person who's been uh, doing that for a long time, as a lifelong manager, it's just something that comes natural. I really want to try and lift up others, you know. So I, I look for opportunities to to do that, and I get a lot of like satisfaction out of it. But the community itself, um, you know, doesn't, you know, it's not like people are kick, kicking my my door in and like, hey Nick, like because you're in this, you know, position, you've got to to give back. That hasn't happened. It's it's really just more of a natural outcoming for the things that I want to do. And I, I feel like I'm very privileged in the sense that I have access to knowledge experiences and networks that I can make e- more easily available to uh, to the next generation. So I, I guess that's my answer. I don't feel pressure for it. I, I get a lot of satisfaction. Out of it. Okay. All right. If you could go back and talk to young Nick, like fresh out of MIT, you got your degree, what advice would you give him? 
young Nick was not the Nick you're talking to now. I have a lot of, it takes a while to recover from MIT. So I guess the first, the first thing I would say is MIT related, which is, you know, I, I graduated thinking technology could solve all problems and technology is amazing, but it turns out like people solve all problems and you can't code your way to, uh, to success. It's a combination of, of code working with people. And that is how you, you solve problems. So I would say young Nick, like, uh, spend more time understanding how the broader business you're in works beyond development, you know, talk to PMs, talk to the testers, talk to sales, marketing, talk to all the people that it takes to bring an organization together to build something. And it's, it's not just coding. I think chart your own course. I, I think I learned this a couple of years in, but like the best opportunities just don't show up. Like, you, you know, the best opportunities come from you being proactive and uh, sometimes that means you just going out to the organization and saying, hey, is there any place I can help? Or what are the big initiatives and, and where should I try and plug in? Sometimes it comes from it does come from luck. But that luck, at least in my experience, is a result of having delivered good product and done good work and networked. Right. So I would tell my young self, like, spend more time trying to create the environment where good opportunities will come to you, not just doing good work and, and, and expecting your manager to reward you for it, but networking and understanding the broader business context so that you could, so you can understand where your time should just be spent. Actually, let me talk about one that's probably the most important because you were making fun of me for working at Microsoft for 15 years. Um, <laughs> that's probably the biggest thing I would say, which is you know, a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome. You know, imposter syndrome is like, hey, you know, I, I'm doing really good at, at my job, but I don't believe I'm doing good. Like, I, I lack the self-confidence. Maybe I, I, I feel like I'm faking it. So I hear a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome. But I think there's like a bigger problem that affects people of color, underrepresented folks. And that's what I call just happy to be here syndrome which is, you know, for the longest time, you know, coming from PG County and going and having your first job be like a six-figure paycheck, right? That's a pretty big freaking difference. That's a big delta. So for many, many years in my career, I was like, well, I'm just happy to be here because I'm making this amount of money and, you know, my alternative would be like going back to PG County or something like that. I had that in my head. Just happy to be here. So, like, no matter what my bosses would ask me for, if they wanted me to come over the weekend, like, something in the back of my head was saying, like, you're just fortunate to be even in this situation. And I didn't realize until far too late, like, that you don't have to just be happy to be there. It's like the the fact that you've made it into tech and that you've, you've had any success, like, your knowledge, skills, and abilities are what you have to offer. And they have their own intrinsic value. And that is what your managers and your company is, is rewarding you for. So they should be happy to have you. <laughs> like if you've shown any sort of skill and results, increasingly, like your company should be happy to have you. I think that holds a lot of people back who are, who are underrepresented. Like, you know, they, they maybe had a big transformation in their lives, you know, going from, you know, where, you know, for me, it was PG County to, to Seattle and, and making so much more money, making more money than, than anyone in my family had made. But what that blinds you from is particularly in tech. If you're always just happy to be here, you're going to be blinded to all of the new opportunities that are around you. And in tech, as far as I can tell, there's no ceiling, Like there's no job I've gotten in tech 
where I didn't like pop my head up and look around for five minutes and there wasn't even a bigger opportunity, like just right over the hill. Even today, I'm chief product officer at a multi-billion dollar company that just got acquired. And I can tell you, like, there's much, much bigger things out there that I could, could even be doing. It's There's no end to it in tech. There's so much opportunity. But when I talk to people, you know, like myself, I suffered from this as well, who are new to their careers and they're maybe not as confident of themselves or understand that they have this intrinsic value, they will pass up opportunities or, or let fear dictate like what their decisions are. And they will just be happy to, to have gotten the job at all. And I think the faster you can kind of get self-confidence and get out of the mentality, the more you can control your own destiny, start making your own career decisions and really navigating all of the opportunities that are sitting here in tech because they're enormous. It's, it's much for the person who's listening to this and you just landed your first six figure job. The opportunities to go beyond that are there and you can do much better. I, I trust me. So don't get locked into this just happy to be here syndrome. Wow. That's no, that's powerful. I really, I really, really like that message. No, you, 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 no, you took the wind out of me with that one. I, I, wow. Okay. What's something that you're really proud of that's not on your resume? This is not explicitly on my resume. And I, and, and the reason I can't talk about it publicly is because we're not supposed to share these sorts of impact numbers uh, publicly. But when I was at Reddit, one of the things I was most proud of, I alluded to it earlier, was the impact that we had on uh, diversity and the engineering organization. We moved the number of women in engineering, the number of people of color in engineering there by, um, you know, double digit figures in a very, very short amount of time. So for me, being able to to have that sort of tangible impact at a place that like has a reputation, like, I, I don't know, you know, Reddit has a reputation for not being the most diverse website, at least it did at the time I joined, but being able to come in and have that kind of substantial impact, move the numbers in a real way, not just platitudes, and do it fairly quickly felt really, really good. It's not something we get to talk about in um, in public a lot because uh, I think Reddit has a policy of not sharing the specifics on the diversity numbers, but they're quite good uh, internally. I think the uh, on the related note, Many of the people that worked for me at Reddit and many of the people who um, who I uh, mentored during that time frame have since gone on to get executive level jobs. I guess the thing I, I am very proud of at this stage in my life is just seeing that my time and energy that I put into people allows them to get to the next level and achieve whatever goals that they have in mind. That I am broadly speaking proud when that occurs. I know it's it's an odd way to to be selfish, but I, I guess selfishly I, I like to to know that I helped other people. I guess that's a way to put it. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's it's 2025. What are you working on? I think uh, I'm going to be at Google for a while. We just got acquired, so I mean I, I'm excited about what we're going to do with um, Looker plus Google. So I think from a product perspective. That is pretty straightforward. But I think my ambitions are increasingly, you know, expanding beyond product. I think uh, there's kind of two other avenues that I'm exploring now. By the way, my wife also is at Slack. So we both had startup uh, exits last year. Mm-hmm. You know, Silicon Valley standard for having a startup exit is you start to look at angel investing and you start to think about venture capital. So on one angle of, of what I'd like to see myself doing in five years is I would like to have been first check to uh, several startups founded by uh, black uh, starters that have 
black founders that have successfully exited. So over the last year, I think I wrote three checks to, to black founders last year. So hopefully in five years, we'll see them being successful. Shout out to Maroxa. I love you guys. The uh, second thing that I'm thinking a lot about is how we can contribute to the next generation of, of people of color in leadership positions. So I've been working on um, training programs and opportunities to try and give the next generation of exec talent access to the same sort of things I was fortunate to have that really set me apart in my career. So when I was at Microsoft, I got access to proto-executive training, and uh, and I also had lots of training uh, through my MBA program. I'd like to see if there's ways we can make those sorts of uh, trainings accessible to the next generation of executive leaders. Because to be blunt, like not everyone should have to go through the uh, the level of difficulty that it took me to get those opportunities. I, I, I want to shorten the gap between the very, very large and existent up and coming generation of potential leaders. I want to shorten the gap between them and the available opportunities. And, and I think that's going to come through training and uh, networking and just shining a light on the fact that there are all these folks who are just on deck ready to, to take a swing. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? You know, if, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I think that's the way most people find me nowadays. So follow me at Nick Cald, N-I-C-K-C-A-L-D. If you're interested in um, learning about engineering management or product philosophy, I've got a ton of stuff that I've been writing on Medium. So you can just Google that. And otherwise, like, don't uh, don't be shy if you would like uh, some advice. A lot of people just uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I respond to almost everything, but I, I know a lot of people want to get coffee. So I'll tell you right now, I can't have that much coffee. <laughs> like, man, I, I, I would be wired nonstop. But I, I will almost always, if you if you write me a thoughtful question, like 99% of the time, I, I take the time out of my day and try and give you a, an answer. So uh, those are all the ways you can reach me. Awesome. Well, Nick Caldwell, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really had no idea how this conversation would go. I knew that as I was doing my research, I was like, oh, we have some things in common. Like he interned at NASA. I interned at NASA. Like I, I was looking at the timeline. Like I felt like we were kind of right doing things like right at the same, like, you know, timeframes and everything. But hearing you talk about not just your interning at NASA, but the work that you've done with Microsoft, the work you're currently doing at Looker, and really how you look at giving back to the community in ways that I think will help set up the next generation of tech executives, et cetera, I think is something which hopefully our audience can learn from and get inspired by to see ways that they can create a more equitable future. That's kind of a, a theme that I'm running with for the year. Like how do we use our talents and and basically the places where we're at to kind of make a better future. And I feel like you're doing it. Like you're, you're doing it. You're making it happen. I'm trying, man. I actually, now that you mentioned this, I'll just put one more thing out there. Cause you asked what advice you asked me, what advice could I give to a younger version of me? Uh-huh. I want to give advice to the older versions of me out there. Okay. Uh, because there's a lot of folks who I've come to meet that are maybe sitting on the fence and, and they don't know if it's okay to try and give back or, or try and do kind of social good. There's a lot of people who are in the generation ahead of us and they're out there wondering if they should help. Now's the time to do it. <laughs> like there's, there's never been more attention and focus on equity and diversity than now. And the numbers are starting to move. So if you're from kind of that, you know, older generation and you're, you've already made it, 
and you're on the fence about whether or not, you know, you should try and invest in this, do it now. Like this is the time to come out and like help the next generation. We need more heroes out there. And I know you're out there. Like I know that there's like multiple people who come from the generation before me who can have an impact in the up and coming generation. So, so please, I'm begging you just go do that. All right. Well, again, Nick Caldwell, thank you for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Big, big thanks to Nick Caldwell. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Nick and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, Design Workflow Management for Modern Design Teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version-sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This episode is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.